Hello, and welcome to Let's Pharmanize. I'm Cal Vandergrift. And I'm Shane Garrison. And this is the pharmacy podcast that brings you current events, pharmaceutical history, examinations of drugs and pop culture, and much more. Today, we're going to be discussing the Xantac recall, a viral outbreak in China, a wild concoction of alcohol and opium, and a real-life fear toxin. All that and more on Let's Pharmanize. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Let's Pharmanize. First off, we want to stop and tell you a little bit about who we are and what we're about. Shane and I are pharmacy students with a love for learning about the ever-changing world of pharmacy. Our goal of this podcast is not to lecture or provide medical advice, but rather to review many pharmacy-relevant issues and portray them in the most unbiased manner possible. We are not only students, but first-year students, and while we may be enthusiastic and passionate about our subjects, this is as much a learning experience for us as it could be for you, the listener. If you have questions, comments, or even corrections, please don't hesitate to contact us at pharmanization at gmail.com. And with that, let's jump into Current Events, our segment for giving new information relevant to pharmacy today. Our first segment dives into the recent recall of Zantac, a popular heartburn drug. This is something that many people, particularly people who work in a community pharmacy setting like myself, may already be familiar with, but they, also like myself, may not know the details or the actual reasons behind the decision, but we are now going to discuss the Zantac recall. Zantac is an H2 receptor blocker used to treat acid reflux and peptic ulcers. The recall began on September 13th. 2019 due to detected contaminant N-nitrosodimethylamine, or NDMA. It is highly hepatotoxic and a known carcinogen in lab animals. It is dangerous even at low levels. It is hard to detect at low levels and hard to remove at any levels. It does not easily degrade, absorb, or volatize. What's interesting about this particular contaminant is that the NDMA present in the drug isn't necessarily an isolated contaminant from a specific source or a byproduct used in the production of the drug, but actually the product of degradation of the drug itself. When exposed to heat, the and I will post pictures of these on our Facebook and Instagram so you can take a look. It's how I know it's hard to visualize it without actually seeing it, but the tertiary amine on one end of the chain and the nitro group on the other end break off and combine to form N-nitrosodimethylamine. I'll show that to Cal right now, and I'll show that to you guys later. Lab studies have shown NDMA to be present. Now, in a lab setting, things can get a little toasty, I'd imagine. I don't know how hot things get, but I'd imagine hot enough to rapidly degrade ranitidine into NDMA. The problem is the degradation can happen even after the product has left the lab and safety testing has already occurred. Emory Pharma, an independent laboratory based in California, performed tests on samples of ranitidine at various temperatures to measure generation of NDMA over time. A sample of ranitidine hit the FDA daily intake limit of 96 nanograms of NDMA after just five days at 158 degrees Fahrenheit or 70 degrees Celsius. That's the temperature of a hot car or a delivery truck in the summer sun. Imagine your mother or grandmother keeping her trusty Zantac in her purse for when her and her girlfriends take the weekly trip to P.F. Chang's. (laughs) Here's what's worse. Even at the comfortable temperature of 77 degrees Fahrenheit or 25 Celsius, 
ranitidine can still degrade into NDMA. This temperature produced 25 nanograms over 12 days. Let's say that grandma has the same bottle of Zantac for a year, which is an assumption I'm comfortable to make. Over the course of those 365 days at 77 degrees Fahrenheit, 760 nanograms of NDMA are potentially generated per dose of ranitidine, which is almost eight times the daily FDA limit. There is a lengthy toxicology report on NDMA that was published in 1989. I hope it's still up to date. I skimmed through it to try to understand a little bit more about how toxic NDMA actually is. It's a little unclear. The only mention of an LD50, which is the lethal dose at which are the the dose at which 50% of the subjects actually die. The whole document only states it once, and it claims that a single dose used in a particular experiment was near the LD50 for rats, and it was a dose of 40 migs per kg, which is 40 milligrams per kilogram of weight of the actual rats. But an interesting note for this experiment is that even though it wasn't quite the LD50 of the for the rats, all of the animals died within 21 days. I was skeptical about this number, the 40 mg per kg, because a bunch of other experiments described in the document involved dosing animals with much lower doses, such as 0.1 mg per kg per day, many of which died. Dogs, guinea pigs, mice, minks, many animals died before they eventually decided, okay, this is uh, toxic, we probably shouldn't be giving this to people. Other sources, including the World Health Organization and Santa Cruz Biotechnology, have determined the LD50 to be somewhere between 20 and 37 mg per kg. One of the things that makes it difficult, however, to ascertain the lethality of a compound like NDMA is the fact that it is carcinogenic. Even at extremely low doses can cause cancerous mutations and can spread, causing death. So we've talked about what happens when ranitidine is exposed to heat. Now let's talk about what happens when ranitidine is exposed to the human body. A study performed by Syracuse University in 2016 analyzed the urine content of NDMA after administration of 150 milligrams of Zantac, which is the normal dose, to 10 healthy patients, 5 male and 5 female. The NDMA measured in the urine increased 400-fold from 110 nanograms, which I believe would be like a normal range of NDMA from like normal food sources, and, and it's well within uh, normal limits, to 47,600 nanograms. Even this is, is still well below dangerous quantities of NDMA, but it's pretty high. Valishore, an online pharmacy that chemically tests every batch of medication and supplement they sell, has been pressuring the FDA to recall all ranitidine, period. Their stance on the subject is that due to the unstable nature of the compound, it's not safe in any capacity. However, even with this information, further study is required to determine the safety of the drug and whether the benefits outweigh the risks. That's kind of the nature of every drug, really. Long-term studies have yet to be done on the carcinogenic effect of this drug on humans. So what does that tell us? I mean, they've done clinical trials on the rats. On the rats. And that was a big, that's big news. 21 days in, I mean, all the rats are dead. Yes. Uh, you can kind of throw away LD50 there, but I mean, what is the serious implication here? Have we seen, you know, patients with significant illness because of this NMDA? No. Okay. <laughs> as, as far as I can tell, nobody has died from NDMA poisoning from Zantac yet. Okay. So why did they recall it? Because it's theoretically dangerous. That's why they've got to ascertain the actual lethality of it. Okay, so they research. recalled it. They currently recalled it because it, it's an issue where we potentially have an issue here. Let's recall mm -hmm. it, take it off the shelves, and then maybe yeah. we'll put it back on eventually. Is that maybe if this NMDA 
becomes an issue at such a high temperature. Is this just a consultation issue? Can we just say, well, you really have to avoid putting it in hot cars or, you know, keeping it in your delivery truck? That's pretty good advice for every medication. Um, NMDA happens to be something that we're currently learning more about. We didn't have methods to detect really low levels of NMDA until recently, which is, I think, why this discovery is happening now. I think the NMDA could have been in the drug since its conception, uh, whenever that was. Mm-hmm. Um, we've known about NMDA itself for a little while. That toxicology report was from 1989. Um, I don't know when brenididine came out. It's, a li- it's older. I don't know exactly when it came out, but right. it's obviously the compound itself hasn't changed and the chemical nature of brenididine to degrade into NMDA hasn't changed. So if you think about it that way, people have been taking it for however many years without any noticeable effect. Although, like I said, more studies are more studies need to take place for us to learn more about this. So obviously Zantac, Zantac is a major heartburn drug mm-hmm. uh, on the market. Uh, what does this do in terms of dollars? Did you get any information on that in terms of what this could mean for the market? That's a good question. I don't know anything about dollar amounts. Mm-hmm. It is definitely an interruption to therapy for a lot of these patients who are unable to get their ranitidine, so they're Obviously, therapy is interrupted while they're communicating with their doctor for the next another drug. It's it's easier than other recalls because it is an over the counter medication. So if they communicate with their pharmacist, the pharmacist can say, "You can switch to something else. You can take cimetidine or, or something." I mean, else. that was my next question. Yeah. I mean, like anything, you know, that, that causes heartburn. I mean, there's so many heartburn drugs out there that yeah. Is this a potential issue? There, maybe we just need to start switching to a drug that doesn't have this potential issue. <laughs> There's other acid reflux drugs out there that aren't, aren't going to hopefully aren't going to degrade into N. Let's N. hope. Let's hope. There's yeah. some heartburn drug out there that's not going to kill you. Most. And, and rats. Well, you know. you know, benefits have to outweigh the risks. Yeah. Grandma going to P.F. Chang's. Yeah. <laughs> Our next topic on current events is a Chinese viral outbreak in the city of Wuhan, China. Researchers have identified a new virus responsible for an infection of 59 people and one death in the city of Wuhan, China. The virus has been labeled a coronavirus, a family of enveloped viruses so named for their peplomers, which is a protein with spikes on the edges of the viruses that attach to the receptors forming an aura under a microscope like a crown or a solar corona. A coronavirus can in some cases be harmless and is second only to the rhinovirus in causing the common cold. Wuhan has a population of almost 12 million people, and that's quite a bit more than New York City's population of just under 9 million. Imagine an unknown viral outbreak in a city more densely populated than New York City. It's kind of a scary thought. Wuhan is appropriately named China's thoroughfare, as it is probably the largest city in central China and is a means or a stopping point to get from one side of the country to another. Wuhan has three railway stations, an extensive metro system, two airports, and now a tram system as of 2017. Lots of mass transportation means lots of people on confined spaces, which means lots of opportunity for viruses to be transmitted. Reports have already surfaced of the infection spreading to nearby Thailand via Chinese tourist. Do you think that China's um, propensity for mass transportation makes them more susceptible than I would say so. countries like yeah. the U.S., where most people drive in their own independent car to work? Yeah, th- this is a pretty big issue here for China. Yeah. And we'll see in just a second here, as um, a previous infection uh, did, did 
a lot of damage to the Chinese population. Uh, the information on this virus is only a week old, but yet some comparisons to the 2003 outbreak of SARS in China has already begun to arise. SARS, which stands for Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, came from a similar coronavirus that is thought to have originated from small mammals in the area. Oh, wow. According to the World Health Organization, over 8,000 people became infected from the SARS virus and death totals reached nearly 800 people, a mortality rate of north of 9%. Back in 2003, the Chinese government was very reluctant to release information on the SARS virus, uh, which, which arose to many international conflicts uh, regarding public health. But this early release of information regarding the new virus may potentially lead to a faster cure and a decreased death total. Already, world organizations are praising China for releasing this information in advance, albeit with they, they were still reluctant to release all of the information on this virus, which could potentially still be an issue down the road. The World Health Organization has yet to make any recommendations to the public regarding travel and safety of this new virus, and you can learn more about this new virus at some of the links posted in the description. You mentioned that there was one one death attributed to the virus. Do we know anything else about that particular death? So the one person that died was a 61-year-old man who contracted this virus, and he was already immunocompromised. He had like late-stage liver failure, and he was already in, in un unfortunately, a dying state when he contracted this illness. Okay. So potentially, uh, the virus could have played a major factor, at least somewhat of a factor, in his sudden death, but he was already in an immunocompromised state. Mm -hmm. In my own, when I was reading about this myself, I saw one of the pictures on the articles had these these Chinese health workers, and they were stationed in a, and I think it was either an airport or a metro, and they had they were holding these little things that looked like phasers from Star Trek or like these little blasters, and I didn't know what they were, so I had to look them up, and they were thermometers. They were using like infrared thermometers, just like tagging people in in like a metro, hmm. and I thought I. I think that's kind of intense. Like they, they're yeah. really going ham on this. Well, I don't think they, sh I don't think they should be messing around at all. Yeah. The SARS, you know, the SARS virus really did a number. I mean, yeah, there was, a, there was a lot of deaths and it was a high mortality rate kind of thing. So obviously, I mean, any precaution. And I think too, I think it's really cool that they're using those like phaser blaster looking thing. Yeah. Because the SARS virus was was transmitted via like coughing and sneezing and the liquid coming from someone else that was already infected. So this might be uh, a measure of precaution. And I think the Chinese government is probably going to take this one a whole lot more seriously and uh, potentially even reach out for world health more than they did mm -hmm. back in 2003. Yeah. With any luck. Can you imagine like having to run to catch the train and then you get stopped and they're like, <laughs> yeah. hold on. <laughs> Check your temperature. Oh, you're still a single degree over above the limit. Hands up. <laughs> we need to check your temperature. Like, yeah, I, I would hope, like, obviously the World Health Organization is, hasn't said anything about travel, but could you imagine, like, an American flying to China and they have no idea what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden people come at you with phasers. Speaking, speaking to you in Chinese with a phaser looking thing. And it's oh, like, my God. <laughs> And is it is I don't know if you know this. Is it one of the ones that like you put on the temple? I would imagine. I don't know what else. So gonna... imagine, imagine someone puts a phaser looking thing to your head is speaking in a foreign language. And then all of a sudden the thing beeps. You think yeah. you're ready to die. And then all of a sudden they're like, OK, have a nice day. Yeah. <laughs> let's go to China. Let's see this. Um, maybe you know after this outbreak is a uh, settles down a little bit. Let's go with the height of the outbreak. Oh, right. <laughs> 
study abroad. <laughs> Don't you? Yeah, exactly. In Wuhan. Wuhan is actually beautiful. Like I was looking at some of the architecture. It's amazing. They've got this, the, they've got this science facility that's got this really traditional industrial architecture, but then Ooh. it's got this beautiful teal tiled uh, curved roof that's traditional of like the... the, the oh, that's really cool. The, yeah. I know a lot of cities in China have like the, where they grow plants and trees like on top of buildings now to try and protect like the ecosystem. Oh, that's cool. And it's in central China, which is probably close to like, I don't remember what it's called, but it was, it, they, they, uh, that's near like the panda population is in like central China. Oh, really? So they're like really environmentally friendly in yeah. central China, which is probably weird why this would populate here. And how do you determine what small mammal would even like SARS came from small mammals in the mm -hmm. area. How do you even start to figure out what this is? Obviously you probably start with like bats and, and other animals that typically can, you know, can have infectious diseases within them. But I don't even know how you start the search for this. I don't know either. I know, I know I was reading something on, um, I can't remember who it was, but we'll post the links and, um, you can probably find it yourself. <clears throat> there was one Chinese researcher that mentioned that they're going to be using the SARS RNA a lot for this, for, to, to try and research this drug, which means they're probably already making progress because SARS has been heavily identified since that outbreak. And there's a lot of data on file on that SARS outbreak. So the fact that we even, I mean, it's a very similar coronavirus. They, they've already mentioned that it's very similar in structure. And in one of the, uh, one of the links that we provide, they actually have a, uh, file to download if you want to see the actual image of the virus that they've already identified. It's a scary looking thing. I just got to say it's a creepy looking virus. But it's like they already know a good bit about this type of virus. And uh, we can only hope it won't have nearly as high of a death toll as what we saw in 2003. Yeah. Speaking of the the actual image of the virus and the, the, the coronavirus family, I don't like their name. Coronavirus? Yeah, I don't think they look like a crown or like a, a solar corona. I think that's I think that's dumb. I Wait. think they look like koosh balls. <laughs> what is a koosh ball? You would know one if you see one, but I don't know what they're. I didn't know what they were called either, and I had to look them up. A koosh ball. Yeah. I, oh, it's one of those things. Yeah, everybody's oh. mom had this on their keychain in 2006. Yeah. I think it was a law. <laughs> Um, Can you best describe what a koosh ball is? For we, We're going to have to post a picture. They are uh, multicolored, really, really fun to play with. They are... Not um, to eat. Don't eat them. I, I mean, don't eat the coronavirus either. That's one thing they have in common. But so <laughs> I'm going to be starting a, an important online petition to, to uh, name this virus, um, to incorporate koosh into the, uh, into the viral name somehow. I think... <laughs> I mean, I don't know what a Corolla even... Corona. Corona excuse me. I don't even know. The Toyota Corolla, Corolla virus. Toyota Corolla. <laughs> oh, man. You heard about the new uh, Ford Fiesta virus? Yeah. It's either the Toyota Corolla virus or like the Corona Extra, like beer virus. Like, yeah. There's, I don't know what a Corona is specifically, like around the sun when they mean that. Is that like during the an eclipse? The solar Corona or is... is it like, I think it's just the, um, like the infrared... Oh, it's infrared? I think so. So you can't see it? Mm, Are you sure? No, maybe uh, we're going to have to cut this because I'm probably wrong. But I think I think it is just like the, uh, the I think they can detect it with mm. infrared. But I also think it is the thing around it. Like it's the aura around it with the eclipse. Yeah. Like I, I, like, I remember watching a TV show once, but they, they like show that there was a large ring around the sun and that was like supposed to be bad or whatever, like dark times were coming or something like that. That was probably what it was. 
What was the threat? Have you ever seen The Terror? The Terror? Yeah, it's a TV show. No. It's about, it. long story short, they go down to, they're, they're um, exploring the Arctic, trying to find the Northwest Passage. And then they have, while they're in like a storm or whatever, or pre-storm, they see the corona. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I know. I just said that I haven't. No. Okay. <laughs> the Terror. The Terror. Sounds yeah. cool. It's a, it's, a real, it's a real thing. Yeah. Like, it's based on real stuff. Have you ever seen a koosh ball? I'm, I think I've seen, I think everyone's seen a koosh ball. And then once we, once, if you see it, then everyone will know. Cause I had no idea what you were talking about. It's like a, I don't know how to best describe it. It's like a rubber ball but with like little fimbriae, little, little legs that just pop out of it. I don't, I don't know how to describe this. I don't, it looks like a coronavirus, but it looks like a, so if, the, if you if know the what the a coronavirus, if the peplumers were more uh, plentiful and thinner and longer, then that would be a koosh ball. Yes. <laughs> also known as opium tincture, laudanum was sold as a 10% opium solution and 90% alcohol. It was used throughout the Victorian era to treat pain, insomnia, and feminine issues. It was created by the famous alchemist Paracelsus back in the 16th century. The name actually comes from the Latin word laudare, meaning something to be praised. And it really was a major breakthrough in its time. In its original concoction, Paracelsus actually included powdered gold and crushed pearls in his remedy, <laughs> something I still don't fully understand. In 1676, though, English physician Thomas Sydenham uh, reduced the remedy to just opium and alcohol, obviously after probably realizing powdered gold and pearls in uh in a solution probably doesn't make it that much more effective. Get that nice silty texture. Yeah. It was used uh, in, in majorly for kings and queens at the time, uh, obviously because of its euphoric effect. Um, this was certainly something that was of high esteem uh, in, in its very early times. Like AirPods. Like AirPods now. Yeah. Exactly. Like just the, the rich people have them. Only rich people. I mean, everyone has... AirPods. Well, maybe not everyone. Everyone has the quote unquote AirPods. Like I have. I don't have AirPods. I have. Well, yeah, but you have like a Google phone or whatever. What's that supposed to mean? Cut. <laughs> I mean, I have AirPods, but I don't have like Apple AirPods because I have an Android phone. In 1804, famous author Thomas De Quincey wrote, and I'm going to try to get this word right. Here was a panacea. Here was a panacea for all human woes. Here was the secret of happiness. Mm. He probably wrote that in an opium, you know, stupor of some sort. But lit. Yeah. Uh, many famous works of the era, such as Frankenstein, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and Dracula, contain references to laudanum. And apparently, uh, we're getting like breaking news of this. I don't know if this is fully true, but it was also in a Black Eyed Peas song. <laughs> I don't know which song. Yeah, it was um, Pump It Laudanum. Pump, it was in Pump It. <laughs> I've never heard pump it. You've like, heard. I've pump heard two songs. If you've been to a sock hop in middle school, you heard pump it. Well, see, your middle school and my middle school is very different. My middle school was like. It's like seven years ago. It was like Katy Perry middle school. Katy Perry wasn't even born yet when I was in middle school <laughs> in 2008. Someone's going to have to fact check that. <laughs> Don't fact check that. I, yeah. 
anyways, uh, the drug reached its height in use uh, in the mid to late 19th century. So 18, you know, post-Civil War and up until the 1900s. Um, and it really did spark one of the first opioid crises in American history. Uh and that's because of the very painful withdrawal symptoms that are associated with it obviously being derived from opium. It became almost exclusively used to treat diarrhea by the 20th century. Um, in 1970, the DEA placed laudanum on the Schedule II drug list. The DEA really ruins all the fun. I mean... Yeah, that's what they're there for. Yeah, of course. Laudanum, Disappointment enforcement agency. It, <laughs> Disappointment. It really is. Yeah. I mean... But you can still get laudanum because it is still used today to treat uh, drug-resistant diarrhea. And black eyed peas concerts. And black eyed peas concerts. That's actually I'm gonna need some laudanum if I have to see the black eyed peas. In the song Pump It, when they say laudanum, they just pass <laughs> they around just laudanum and throw it at the audience. <laughs> I really needed some laudanum after that uh, after that half uh, the all-star game performance from Oh, was that sports? From Fergie. Is that her name? Fergie. You not the basketball that? thing where she did? Yeah, the, yeah, uh, the basketball yeah. thing. Yeah. The, the really, really bad blues. She, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anthem. What's that song? The National Anthem. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Star Spangled Banner. Actually. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it's probably called. It's really sad that, like, celebrities get a boost in their fame because of how they butcher the National Anthem. Do you well, she like Michael done. Bolton did the National Anthem? Oh, God. Do you remember Michael Bolton, first of all? That's like... Yeah. That's like old. But he, like, forgot lyrics to the, the national anthem. What a shame. It was really funny. <laughs> I think he forgot and the Rockets red glare. I think that was what he got stumped on. That's, like, the best part of the song. Maybe, yeah. That's, oh, like, it's, the climactic part of the song. Yeah. How do you forget that? I like the way Fergie did it, though. Yeah. I think that should be our song, actually. That's going to be for our, our podcast. Is yeah. the Fergie <laughs> national anthem. Please don't sue us, Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> Well, that's all I have on laudanum, Shane. Do you have any questions? So, yeah, I, I do. So well, I'd like to point out that I, I find it adorable that Paracelsus made a drug that has an effect on peristalsis. I just what? wanted to point that out again. So it really seems like this opioid created kind of a crisis. It did. Could that be in any way similar to today's opioid crisis? Well, they are both opioids, and we do have a significant issue with uh, fentanyl going on right now. I don't know if you know this or if you even uh, check the news ever. But What's fentanyl? <laughs> it's, um, I don't have a joke. I was going to come up with some. Uh, yeah, I'll just go ahead and leave. <laughs> Uh, so yes, actually, it does have it does have a significant similarity to what we're dealing with right now. Uh, obviously, laudanum wasn't nearly as regulated as fentanyl is today, and we don't have we have now what obviously you know our ancestors didn't have two hundred years ago uh, in terms of regulations. But yeah, it's significant what the similarities are. Because, I mean, you look at what happened with all those people with laudanum and, and their major withdrawal symptoms, and really we're seeing that. But now we're seeing a lot more of death cases with fentanyl because obviously fentanyl is way more potent um, than, than morphine and codeine and every other of the, of the true opioid drugs. I mean, the, these semi-synthetics are – those things are killers. Yeah, man. They're pretty potent stuff. What specifically does, does laudanum target within the body? So, like many of the other opioids um, that we might talk about, they target what are called opioid mu receptors or mu receptors. And those are placed all throughout the central nervous system and in the GI system with, with splanchnic innervation. And that's major uh, what laudanum 
comes in contact with is the GI system because that is the current only indication that we still have uh, for that concoction uh, is to is to treat drug resistant diarrhea. But of course, that doesn't mean, you know, we're going to be dishing out laudanum every time someone, you know, has the runs. Oh, my God. I mean, we have other lines of treatment. But, you know, if you have drug resistant diarrhea, I'm not even sure this is a good question that I don't know. Any potential diarrhea use uh, with C. diff patients? I, I don't know that, but um, that would be an interesting, interesting uh, Google, or if someone can tell us, that would be interesting. Yeah. So we we talked. You mentioned that opium tincture is is a, in an alcohol solution. It is. It's probably because it doesn't dissolve well in water. But I'm assuming that the combination of opium opium and alcohol was probably pretty, made it even even more dangerous. Like, were there a record of, like, overdoses from uh, respiratory, or death from respiratory depression? Uh, more than likely, yeah. Um, during its height, I'm sure there, there was a lot of cases involving death-related uh, uh, respiratory depression. And obviously, it helps uh, when alcohol is being used to stimulate that euphoric effect, which only made it that much more addicting. I mean, mm-hmm. how many people, even today, have, you know, alcohol addiction? It didn't make it good for sure. And I believe that that was the issue was it couldn't dissolve in water. So it was used in alcohol. Um, But yeah, yeah, I I bet there's plenty of of cases out there uh, relating to some sort of death related to respiratory issues with laudanum. Okay, time to talk about the Batman Begins Fear Toxin. Dr. Jonathan Crane, a.k.a. Scarecrow, made his infamous fear toxin from blue poppies, I love this, that were just growing conveniently right outside of the headquarters of the League of Shadows. There's just this field of of blue poppies that can make this perfect fear toxin. Is this set in the Wizard of Oz? It is not. Um, not This isn't Emerald City? No, this isn't Emerald City. City. Emerald City, not the No, totally different. The uh, gas itself is a psychotropic hallucinogen, which is usually weaponized in a gas form to instill uncontrollable fear and panic in the victim. Right offhand, it's clear that this compound is not based on any real drug. It is purely fictional, and it's used as a plot device in the shows and comics, and it's prominently featured in Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins. Psychedelic drugs, however, do exist. They can produce hallucinations, and their typical mechanism of action is through agonizing serotonin receptors. What we're going to talk about today is LSD, which is a special psychedelic drug because it also agonizes the D2 receptor, which is the target receptor for many antipsychotic drugs as well. LSD, if you're not aware, is lysergic acid diethylamide, if I'm saying that correctly. LSD specifically is a partial agonist, whereas the antipsychotic drugs are blockers. They are antagonists. They have the opposite effect of an agonist. Well, not the opposite effect. They just don't produce a physiological effect, not the opposite effect. That's incorrect. LSD is also quite lipophilic, which means it permeates cell membranes and in particular the blood-brain barrier, which is a must because that's where its activity takes place. One of the key differences between a drug like LSD and the fear toxin from Batman Begins is what's called the onset of action, which is how long a drug actually takes before it produces an effect. LSD takes between 20 and 30 minutes to exert its effects on the user, whereas the fear toxin from the movies, as you remember, was instant. Right? As I clearly remember from the movie I did not watch. 
We'll talk about that <laughs> later. It's not the best Batman movie, but it's a good movie. Even after the medication, even after LSD starts to kick in, the effects don't peak for another few hours. The duration could be 8 to 12 hours. The fear toxin doesn't have a clear duration, at least not that I remember being described in the movie, but the onset was instant. As soon as Dr. Scarecrow, Dr. Jonathan Crane, would spray people with his fear toxin, they would get scared of things. They would get the fear from the toxin. LSD, uh, the, as soon as the gas is inhaled, the users experience horrible hallucinations wherein they actually visualize their fears. LSD can't specifically make you see your fears, per se. You could have what's called a bad trip, where you could have some really bad anxiety, nausea, maybe see some pretty scary stuff, but it wouldn't be consistent enough to use as a weapon. Also, it would take too long to kick in. 20 to 30 minutes isn't really an effective weapon. Yeah. Well, it could be, but I mean, it could be. Yeah, it could be, but it's not like in in the in the movie. He like uses it when he's like hand to hand combat with Batman. He just like sprays him. Right. But if that were like LSD that he just made him eat, it would take like twenty I was minutes. More of like an inglorious bastards thing where everyone's sitting in a like like maybe a movie and you like spray it through like the ducks. Mm-hmm. Maybe then it could be. It could See be something like that. We'll get there. Our objective now is to weaponize LSD. <laughs> That's our goal? Is That's to- what we're going to talk about oh, now. Okay. I hope the government isn't listening, or if they do, I do take Venmo. All right. <laughs> Someone with better knowledge of organic chemistry would be better suited to discuss this next segment, but they are not here, so it's just me. If you look at the chemical structures of compounds that act on this particular serotonin receptor, which is the 5-HTA, I think... 5-HTA. That sounds right. That sounds like I mean, a real like a, thing. There's like a lot of serotonin receptors. But this too. is the same one that 5-HT. Is that what I said? Because it's you written. You said A. I mean, like, it's like 1A, 1B, and a bunch of other ones. Well, it's 5-HT because that's what's written that's right That's serotonin. Here. That's what I said. Yeah, but you said A. A what? I, I don't know. You said A. Me neither. Anyway, <laughs> so we're going to post this image on our, our Facebook and Instagram as well. It's an image comparing chemical structures of many hallucinogenic drugs as well as many anti-migraine drugs, which have activity on similar receptors. And that is where we theorize that the uh, drugs like LSD exert their hallucinogenic effect. So if we were to try to change this molecule, LSD, we would need to change it in a way that would not alter the part of the molecule that actually activates on the receptor. They all seem to have this little tryptophan motif. If you see that little little six-membered ring and then the the, uh, the benzene and then the with the conjugated double bonds and then what's called an azoline, a five-membered ring with a single nitrogen. At least I think it's an azoline unless the bond from the carbon ring counts, which would make it an azole. I'm not really good at the functional group stuff. If we assume that this is the part of the molecule that actually complexes with the receptor, I don't think there's a whole ton of research into like the really advanced mechanism of action of LSD, but we'll figure it out. We're also going to talk a little bit about the C log P of the molecule, which is pretty advanced chemistry stuff. It is a sort of a measurement of the lipophilicity or the hydrophobicity of a molecule. The higher the C log P, the more easily it can slip through membranes, right? I thought higher C log P was a higher hydrophobicity. Maybe. Yeah, that is the same thing. Is that what it is? Hydrophobicity, lipophilicity. You're right, you're right, you're right. Yeah. Same thing. 
They're well, they, yeah. kind of. I mean, they're kind. They are synonymous for like the same action, but they're not the same thing. Potato, potato. Mm. Anyway, so the C log P of LSD with surgic acid diethyl diethylamide is two point six nine one eight. Remember that number, or don't. You don't have. It's to. on the test at it's, the end of. There, end of the there is going to be a Kahoot. Um, <laughs> so I went uh, pretty pretty deep, I think, with this. How we're going to weaponize LSD. So the first thing we need to do is there's a ketone on top of the LSD molecule, which you can see right here. And I'm going to post this whole breakdown, the formula to weaponize LSD, on our website, and. Someone bail me out of jail when we're done with this. Um, so first, we're going to reduce the ketone with, um, what's the molecule called? Lithium aluminum H4, L-I-A-L-H4. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You, you could also use... Uh, it's a really potent reducing agent. BH4, if I remember from organic chemistry, right? I just want to know the name of the actual... This lithium aluminum hydride. Yeah. It's hydride. The tri then, uh, so this would reduce the ketone to an alcohol. And then I want to treat that alcohol with hydrobromide to halogenate the alcohol. Okay. And then I would use the Gilman's reagent, lithium dimethyl cuprate, to replace a halide with a methyl group. I already, I'm already lost. You just keep. Going. I'll draw it and I'll show you. I didn't draw it here. I should have. This yields us a C log P of three point three three nine. So original C log P was two point six nine one eight. New C log P is three point three three nine, which is a little better, bit, a little yeah. bit higher, Getting more, but more scary. But we don't want to make it so high that it's too lipophilic and gets stuck in the membrane or attaches to some molecular protein that it's not supposed to, that it's not the target. Because if you increase the lipophilicity too high, then you, inc you potentially increase the toxicity. Do you think we want it in the tissue, or do you think we want it in the bloodstream, which would be more toxic? Just, toxic. just you wait. Oh, just you wait Whoa. and find out. So it's onset. This would potentially, theoretically, make the onset a little bit faster as long as metabolism doesn't, it, it's not metabolized differently. However, I think that if we affect it in that way, I don't think it would have such a dramatic effect on the metabolism because we're affecting it pretty minorly, but just enough that the C log P is affected slightly. So we're going to bump it up so it slips through that membrane a little bit faster. The next way. Well, the next thing we need to do is maximize bioavailability and administer in such a way that the patient can't resist taking it. Not because like they want to, it's like a, like a delicious dessert that they can't, that they have to resist. It's like, they can't resist me, like stop resisting. Because it's pretty hydrophobic, it would dissolve poorly in water. So it would probably need to be dissolved in an oil. Since it doesn't boil either, it just degrades. It would need to be vaporized. So we're talking a, Big weaponized vape. Inhaling the droplets and absorbing them straight into the bloodstream through the lungs and mucous membranes would have a faster onset than oral LSD as well. Not much faster because the oral LSD films, um, they come in like films, wafers, and something else. It's uh, blotters. What? I know a lot about LSD. <laughs> So it came in like sheets. I wish I hadn't like Googled all this because now it's all in my history. They're probably already like before I'm even going to post this podcast, they're going to arrest me here. All right. You ready? Here's the key to weaponizing LSD. And it's not a drug. Ready? Uh, One word. Know. Hertz. Specifically, less than 20 hertz, which you might recognize as the lower limits of human hearing. Uh, oh, 
Sounds that are lower than 20 hertz are called infrasound. Such things like distant earthquakes or shifting tectonic plates, thunderstorms, volcanoes, really loud, low sounds emitted that are below the threshold of human hearing are able to permeate through obstacles without dissipating. That's a characteristic of low frequency sounds. That's why you can hear pounding bass from a car driving through your neighborhood or the apartment next door, but you may not be able to pick out individual lyrics. See, I thought you were going to talk about like rental cars, like Hertz, the, like Enterprise Hertz, like that would be the way. <laughs> they're, they're already like it's in the exhaust fumes of rental cars. You've heard stories of animals having a seeming premonition about natural disasters, right? Moving their young or vacating an area before an oncoming disaster, like a tsunami or an earthquake. You heard of these like stories and stuff? Tsunami. Yeah. Is that a drug? Ha ha. Ha ha What is that even? That's not even funny. Okay. <laughs> You're not funny. We're going to have to cut that too. <laughs> You've heard stories of animals having seeming premonition about natural disasters. Yes. Like moving their young or vacating an area before. Like birds. Like, yeah, like birds or like they, they're, before the Japanese tsunami, like all the animals in the area cleared out. They were like, something's coming. We got to bounce. Well, it's theorized that it's because of their ability to detect infrasound. They can actually hear those low rumbling sounds of the tsunami before humans can detect it, before they can hear it or see it. Even though humans can't consciously detect sounds below 20 hertz, there seems to be a phenomenon wherein people affected by sounds below 20 hertz report intense feelings of anxiety, fear, and in some cases, even nausea. Whoa. The physiological response to these sounds are perhaps, uh, I don't know, evolutionary leftovers from ancient ancestors who needed to be warned of either a storm on the horizon, stampeding animals, earthquakes, etc., now it's utilized actually in horror movies to instill the same unidentifiable sense of fear in the viewer. So I propose, as we dose with the weaponized LSD, we hit him with the infrasound from like massive subwoofers in an attempt to trigger a bad trip. Because I theorize that if they're feeling that intense anxiety already from, these, from the infrasound, then if they get dosed with the LSD, it's gonna trigger a bad trip. I didn't see where this was coming. I thought I did and I, I got lost. And then like, see, when I thought you were talking about vaporizers, I thought we were gonna jump into, well, I mean, we see what like juuling and vaping has done. Maybe you could like promote like, hey. Don't, don't <laughs> want vape. Some, want some LSD? Oh my God. Try this new vape. Vaping is dangerous enough without weaponized LSD. Yeah, but we're trying to, you know. This podcast brought to you from the jail cell uh, yes. we're currently in. Yeah. Yeah. Not good. Well, guys, it's lunchtime and they're serving spaghetti today <laughs> at the detention center. Well, that was interesting. Um, I didn't know you could do that, like with under 20 hertz. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. It's um, it's pretty nuts. I think they used it in the uh, the movies Ari Aster's, Ari Aster's new movies, Midsommar and Hereditary. Well, because there's no reason for those movies to be as scary as they were without him using like infrasound hmm. and they use them in, um, in other horror movies. Like there's this one French horror movie, maybe called like Terrible or something. Now, I wonder if it's under 20 hertz. Does that make you wonder like why in scary movies they play the really high pitched noises when someone's like, you know, coming with a knife or something like that? Maybe because that's also... Maybe it works on both Really high-pitched triggers triggers something else, like like a squealing animal. Or, Maybe. or like a crying baby. A crying baby, yeah. Yeah. Some weird subconscious thing that you're just thinking. 
That was weird. Well, you heard it here first, uh, folks. Uh, t- under 20. Under hertz, 20 hertz. Hertz keep, rental keep, cars. Yeah. Keep an eye on the skies. Keep an eye on the skies. And stay tuned to this, this here channel. <laughs> Our next episode coming from uh, the court trial. Yeah. Us. We're going to live stream it. Yeah. <laughs> on Twitch. Hey. You can hear Let's Farmanize on Spotify, Apple, Anchor, and Podbay. Stay tuned for our next episodes that are posted every two weeks. Also, check out our Facebook and Patreon pages. Thanks for your support.